Well, the, the more and more time that uh, we spend in our Bibles, uh, it's amazing how we discover that uh, though it, the Bible can be viewed oftentimes as being very abstract or apart from living. And most people, when they look at it, they're thinking these days, who cares about that? Uh, but when you really get into it and you read it, you find out something. It is immensely practical for day-to-day life, each moment of each day. And it's something where, um, if we really are honest about it, we would see that for those that would say that they don't understand how this thing applies to our daily lives, usually the problem is because they've not read it. And, and when we really do get into seeing the practical ways it applies in the, in the deep, dark times, in the bright, joyful times, in the, in the messy times, we're on a bumpy road, we're not quite sure how to navigate it. Uh, the Bible is, is what gives us the, the track. It gives us clarity. It gives us understanding in those things. And, uh, and so we, we find ourselves here again in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been, if, if you're not familiar with what we do here at Clayton Valley Church, we go through typically the Bible verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph to find out what God would have to say to us. And I'll, I'll be honest, folks, I, I, I wrestled with, am I preaching this on Mother's Day? Am I really going to do that? Like, really, Chris, you're going to do that? But as I prayed about it, and I thought, yeah, I could just do a Mother's Day message, I can come back. But as I prayed about it and looked at it, it, I became more and more convinced, no, this is exactly what all of us need to hear, uh, including moms. And, and if anything, I, I, after really considering the passage more, I grew to see that this passage actually applies to moms and types of moms that typically get overlooked in, in our, our kind of cultural Mother's Day celebration. So, so no, this is not a Mother's Day message. There will be application for moms as we go through the passage. And I hope you'll see, as I've discovered, that there are elements of motherhood and, and moms in particular of, of different types and different spheres that are neglected sometimes, uh, that you're not always going to find in the Hallmark store on the shelf uh, for a card for them, and yet they're dealing with things that are real. And the Bible has a candid, real way of dealing with those things. So uh, as Paul's writing to the church in first century Corinth, the reality is, is marriages there were very much like marriages today in, in the 21st century Bay Area. Uh, namely, they were in trouble. There were problems. Uh, there were excesses and distortions uh, in the areas of uh, the way women were, were treated, the way sex was utilized in the culture. There was degradation that came in from the surrounding culture that would affect the church. Um, The concept of singleness was also distorted, and so in different ways than we often experience today, but it was distorted nonetheless. And that'll be addressed a little bit more in in, in the weeks ahead. But but Paul is caring for the church in Corinth, and, and they had written him a letter that included several questions and now here in chapter 7, he, he turns to address those questions. And so if you would go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. In honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? First Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman... But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. 
The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession and not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you and and ask that in this time, in this moment that we share together in your word, uh, that your Holy Spirit himself would transform us from the inside out. We pray that you would teach us things that only you can teach us. And as this passage touches on many areas, some of which are painful, some of which are difficult for for us, uh, Lord, we look to you to bring the healing of the truth and grace that comes only in Jesus. Uh, We look to you. We thank you for these things now in his name, and we praise you. Amen. Go ahead and you can take your seats. Here Paul is, is addressing questions that the Corinthian church brought to him. And in doing so, he's really addressing not simply the, the topics that are listed in this chapter and addressed, but, but more genuinely, he's, he's talking about what does it mean to live a genuine Christian life in these different spheres? What does that look like? Uh, and so throughout the book, as we've already said, in, in Corinth, uh, they were bringing up these false criteria for true spirituality. They were saying you can be really spiritual if fill in the blank. And, and so in, in, in this setting, we're going to be asking the question, what does the genuine Christian life look like in daily life, especially to those who are married, those who are single, or those who are married to an unbelieving spouse? Those are the three areas that he's addressing. And, and so as we look at that, we're going to be kind of just breaking this down this way. We're going to look at the setting, and then we'll be looking at the false claims, and then from there we'll be looking at the genuine wisdom that Paul gives us in these things. So for the, fir- for the first area, the first type of person he deals with would be to the married. And, and what was happening is somehow there were people there who were claiming this. The false claim was, we're really spiritual 
if we abstain from sex. That's what married people were saying there in Corinth. Now, if you think back to what Andrew was talking about last week in the previous section, you can kind of see why, right? Because Paul's been addressing sexual immorality. Uh, He's been addressing uh, fornication, people who are engaging in sex outside of a one-man, one-woman covenant relationship. Uh, Anything apart from that would would be sin. He's also been been dealing with adultery. So that would be a married person having a sexual relationship with someone who's not their spouse. Uh, He's dealt with uh, homosexuality. He's dealt with various other forms of sexual perversion, all of which were prevalent in in first century Corinth. And so as he's dealing with all these things, you can see what they're saying, you know, we don't want to go anywhere near that because it must be that that sexual relations within a marriage, it's just going to cause problems. So let's just abstain. We just won't do it anymore. And, and so and by doing so, then we're really being spiritual. In some ways, it's almost like they're saying, you know what, I know we're married, but if we, if we, were, if we could just act a little bit single, you know, we'd be more spiritual. And so what does he say in response to that? What's the genuine wisdom? He says, stop depriving, give yourselves to one another. That's what he says. And, uh, and I think that's really important. And, and, and um, you know, he, he's quoting what they said to him in verse 1. The things you, which you wrote. And then there's the quote. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what they were saying to him. That's, that's the best thing. And good there has this idea of the best life you could have, the fullest life you could have, the most satisfying life you could have, or the most spiritual life you could have would be to live your life in this way. And, uh, and so Paul, Paul is saying, don't do that. Complete sexual abstinence within marriage is not wise and it's not good. Why? Because Paul's being a realist. He says in verse 5, what's going to happen if that goes on? Satan's going to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You're actually setting yourself up for sin. And, and so Paul is showing that just because there's a prevalence of sexual immorality in the culture around them, that should not lead to rigorous abstinence within marriage. Uh, because it's one of God's gifts. And, uh, you know, and by the way, again, to parents, I know I've given this disclosure many times. We are still in the book of 1 Corinthians. If there's any point in time where you feel like you need to, you know, if you have younger kiddos here and you're not wanting to discuss exactly these things with them right now, we respect that. And, uh, and of course, you can feel free to, to do that. But... Um, but there's, there's a way in which I think often, and it has happened in the first century, and it happens today, because there's so much things about God's gift of sexual connection and intimacy between a husband and a wife within marriage, because it's twisted and perverted so much, it's almost like all the twisting and perverting and changing has so contaminated the minds of even God's people within a given culture that the whole entire area of sexuality becomes this dirty thing we don't talk about. We can't talk about that. When in fact, if we don't talk about it here, where are we going to talk about it? We need to talk about it here. The Bible describes it and talks about it. Even Paul here, what's he referring back to? He's going back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. The creation account itself. Man and woman made in God's image. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. 
and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you were here last week, Andrew talked a lot about that phrase. That, that phrase does have the idea of the, of a, the consummation of marriage with, within the, the, the loving, self-sacrificial giving of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's a good thing. And it's God's idea. You know, again, I think we, you know, Hollywood did not come up with the idea of sex, okay? It wasn't their idea. It was God's. But you'll notice that Paul describes what this idea of sexual connection between a husband and wife within a Christ-centered context looks like. And it's very specific. Notice verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. That's where he starts. What's that mean? Husbands, you are to give yourself with care and concern for your spouse in this area of, of sexuality that's shared together. Now, does that apply to Mother's Day? Yes. Why? Well, guess what, husbands? You had something to do with her becoming a mother. <laughs> do I need to explain that to you any further? I hope not. I think you get that. So certainly it applies. But, but, but here's the beauty of, of the biblical picture. It is to be given with other-centeredness, with care for her needs and desires. Um, that's what makes verse 4 make sense. And I think verse 4 can be scary because verse 4 has been abused over the centuries. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And often it's stop, hard stop. And sadly, abuse and other twisted, perverted things have come from that. And so let's just be really, really clear. That is not what this passage is talking about. And, and to, to a wife who is in an abusive scenario or to a husband, it happens the other way as well. Uh, the Bible would call you to take steps to get to the place of being safe and being able to deal with the situation. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, an immediate just, uh, you know, divorce, abandonment, running away. It means you talk to people, you get help, you get the authorities involved. Um, if you let someone here at Clayton Valley Church know about that and it comes to, to someone who's overseeing those things or to a pastor, or myself, Andrew, or others, um, we would be happy to help you with that. And, and you should know this, the authorities will be involved right away. We don't stop, we don't cover things up, we, we bring things to the light by the grace of God and try to deal with them. But that's important to know. So the abuses of this passage, though, we need to be careful that the abuses over the centuries don't cause us to then not deal with what the passage says. Which, again, in the context, in the way it's described, it is a mutual love and care for one another. And the fact that verse 3 would read this way in the first century, that's just shocking to the hearers there. We need to place ourselves again back in that context. Women did not have the same rights as men. Oftentimes, wives were considered to be property practically. And so that Paul would start off with, hey, husband, you've got a responsibility to sacrificially care for and love your wife in this way. And they're probably going, what? Yes. And it's reciprocal. Wives, you as well. There's a loving, other-centered nature to this relationship. 
And then verse 5 and 6, it's, it's, that's just fascinating. Stop depriving one another. So both of them were thinking, oh, yeah, we could be really spiritual if we just don't engage you know, in any form of sexual activity together as, as a married couple. That's really spiritual. And Paul's like, verse 5, stop it. But then he gives an exception. He gives an exception. Notice, except by agreement. So both of you agree. It's not just one of you. It's you both agree and it's for a time, so don't let it prolong. It's not forever, it's for a time. And notice the next part of verse 5. So that, here's the purpose, you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, I got to tell you, I, I've been in ministry for about 20 years. I've had a lot of couples come through the office for counseling at various times, and I've had a lot of couples share that, uh, you know, the, uh, they're... they're, they're Lives together in terms of physical intimacy do not exist. But never once in the past 20 plus years have I heard them say, because we're devoting ourselves to prayer. <laughs> that has never happened yet. Usually it's for all kinds of other reasons. And, and frankly, again, let's be wise and sensitive about that. There are sometimes where things are going on, that things need to be dealt with and cared for. There, there are some counselors who will actually say to people, you know what you got to do? Just go have, have, have physical intimacy with one another and everything will be fine. That's not it. So whatever the issues are that are preventing you two from being together, you need to talk that through with a, with a biblical counselor. You need to deal with that. Talk that through and deal with those issues. So uh, this passage is not teaching. So go out, go out of here. It doesn't matter what's going on. Just simply, you know, re-engage in that. If, those are, if that's a part of your life together, you need to walk that through with somebody. Um, that's important because, because there, are, there are usually reasons for that. But aside from that, some, sometimes um, there's, there are things happening where, where a couple um, has unresolved conflict. Sometimes... There has been betrayal in the marriage and there's a, a lack of trust that's been undermined by that betrayal. Sometimes uh, there are issues of fear, of anxiety. Um, there can be a lot of things. So again, let's not just put a, put a big blanket over this thing and call it all the same and then just say, just go out there and be intimate with one another sexually. However, this is certainly saying there's a reason to not engage together in that way as a married couple. And it's always by mutual agreement, and it's always for a short period of time. And it's for the purpose of prayer. I think the picture here is, is there's a couple, and they're, they're, things are happening. Everything's going on with their lives. Uh, they might have kids. They might not have kids. But in the hecticness of life, things are just happening, and they want to make sure that we're, they're walking together with God. And certainly as couples pray together, that's a powerful, beautiful, and good thing. And so the picture would be, Oh, we need, to, we need to pray. Let's pray. And it's so important to pray. We're actually going to not engage together physically for this punctuated period of time so that we can do that. And, and again, I, I, that's, that's the wisdom that comes from the Lord that's something we don't naturally gravitate towards. And, and again, it comes with that qualifier. Notice at the end of verse 5, look at what it says. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
don't, don't let it go on. Don't let it stretch out. Um, the, this is the, amazingly, the first century world and the 21st century world are very similar. Uh, we've said this many times, but this idea of the good old days, you know, the good old days weren't always good, folks. They just weren't. And so here we find, you know, again, the Bible would talk about this in many places. We already referenced Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Uh, think of the Song of Solomon. Wow, what an amazing depiction of of a life of fidelity and love before God that includes his gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. I mean, granted, the language there we don't quite get. Uh, I have seen pictures of, you know, literal pictures of your, your, your neck is like an ivory tower. Really? Okay. That's pretty, I guess. I don't know. Um, but the point is, both husband and wife mutually together giving to one another, loving one another, caring for one another, and enjoying God's gift in that. That's a gospel way to live. That's gospel wisdom. But the, the, the next group of people that Paul deals with are those who are single. And, uh, and we find that in verses 6 through 9. And, and I think one of the things that he's dealing with here is certainly this. Here's the false claim. I could be really spiritual if I were married. And his response is simply this. If gifted, remain single. If not, seek marriage. And, and what he describes here, I think, is surprising to some of us because I feel like especially within the church, um, there is almost at times a, the way people dialogue, the way people talk, the way uh, classes and sermons and other things are brought forward, the way issues come to the forefront. Um, frankly, there are times where singles are ignored. And that's wrong. And I don't think it's deliberate. If we look at the stats right now in the Bay Area, the percentage of folks who are single, men and women who are single, uh, we're talking like well over 60%. And it's climbing. And, and in so, some ways, in, you know, in some areas of, of the vineyard, we could say, you know, it's almost like, well, by golly, why don't those people get married? That's what they're supposed to do. Well, I don't know if that's true. As a matter of fact, look at what Paul says here. Verse 6, but I say this by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has a gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. What's Paul saying? Uh, you know what? I have the gift uh, that uh, allows me to not have to get married. <laughs> the gift of singleness. He'll go on, verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them to remain even as I. There it is. That's where he says it. Remain like I am. Verse 9. But if they don't have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so what, what's Paul saying here? Um, by way of concession, not of command, he, he, Paul's saying, I'm not going to tell you what you're supposed to do in this. You have freedom here. <laughs> 
before God. I'm not saying you have to remain single. But he's saying, but if you have the gift, it'd be better if you did. And he's not saying, I'm not saying you have to marry, but you certainly may marry if you wish to. Um, So he's not telling the single person they have to get married. He's not saying that they have to remain single. But he is saying that they may get married if they'd like to, and they shouldn't listen to the people that are saying, the only spiritual way to live is if you're married. Or listen to the people that would say the only spiritual way to live is to remain single. And that's what happens. And, and it seems like in the first century, it's possible that more people were thinking, oh yeah, be single. That's the way to live. Just be single. In our culture, I think we lean the other way more. Oh, you gotta be, you're getting married, right? I mean, hello, come on. Come on. Time's a ticking. Let's go. And, and Paul is saying, no, if you have the gift of singleness, that's a beautiful thing. Because you, you have freedom. You, you have the ability to do things that, that others can't. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of um, you know, several people I know in my life. I won't mention them by name. Um, you know, some, some are here right now. Others are in other places. But, but I know people, and, and what they're able to do is uh, serve God and have a freedom to do what God's called them to do that, frankly, those who are married just don't have in the same way. Um, you know, there, there's someone who, who, who is involved in the lives of others in terms of ministry, um, he, he's unmarried, but he is able to be uh, you know, in, involved in, in the lives of young people. That's his calling. And he's available, man. He's at, he's at all the games. He can make it. Um, he's, he's at events and things that, that kids who are actually you know, uh, neglected by parents, he's able to be kind of like a big brother to them. Um, You know, there are, there are others who are able to, to just, on the moment's notice, there's a need, boom, they're there. They're ready to care for others. And Paul does describe it as a gift, doesn't he? What does that gift of singleness entail? Well, it, there's a, a way in which for Paul, he was not um, given to the temptation of, of, of sexual needs or desires in that way. They were, they were not prevalent in his constitution, makeup, and life. And so he was able to be freed up. Now, some of you might be here today and you're going, um, I might have that gift, I might not, but if it is my gift, I hope I have a gift receipt because I want to take it back. I don't want that gift. And, and I, think, I think there are some elements to the gift um, that may, I'm not saying it's definite, I think it's worth considering talking about and praying. So please know this is not a blanket statement either. But generally speaking, if someone has the gift of singleness, I don't think they feel that way about the gift. Let me put it that way. So I think if you feel that way, it's possible, I'm not saying it's definite, it's possible that you don't have that gift. Um, and I think it's important to keep some things in mind. You know, as Andrew said last week, you have to forsake, for, for singles, the single among us, you have to forsake the lie that you cannot live without sex. I mean, the most fulfilled human being who ever walked the face of the planet was Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
He lived the best life that could ever be lived. He was not married. And so uh, the single life as modeled by the Lord, as modeled here by Paul, is is a good, fulfilling, grace-filled life. However, if that's not your gift, God does, in the midst of the seeking of a spouse, he does cultivate and help us to cultivate contentedness while in the pursuit. And that's so important. And singles, if I could just say that to you, I just, I can't tell you how many times, and I'll kind of go back to, to some counseling that I've done over the years. I know it's hard to be alone. It's a, it's a painful thing. It's a difficult thing. But I can tell you this, if you marry outside of God's parameters, guidelines, and will, the pain you will know is tenfold what you're experiencing in loneliness. In other words, yes, it's hard to be single. It is way, way, way harder to be married to the wrong person. And I don't say that to you glibly, and I'm not saying, so just buck up and walk out of here. No, you get to wrestle with that. It's hard. Um, and the, the call for all of us is to walk through those things together. But, but there, is a, there is a way in which God, over time, cultivates in our hearts contentedness in the pursuit. The other thing to keep in mind is, single person, you have a Savior who understands your temptations. He was single, and he lived, again, the most fulfilled life ever. And so Paul desires this for people. And he's not, he's not desiring this way of walking as a single person in Jesus because marriage is a bad thing. He's clear on that. That's why he says what he says. He's saying it by way of concession, not command. But he's also saying for those who marry, there are worldly problems. Um, and again, trust me, in, when people come in to talk to me, just, just I, sometimes I wish I could just have the singles who are saying, if I could be married my whole life, all my life problems would be solved. I want you to sit with me through a, one of those sessions. It'd be great, because then you'd be going, wow, okay, so that grass greener thing's a real, a real thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a reason. The thing in my office there, it is a couch. It is not a love seat, okay? It's a couch. <laughs> it's a couch, all right? There's a reason for that. People sit there. Um, but it's important, and so, so again, the, the false claim that you could be really spiritual if you're married. It, it's, it, no, if you're gifted, remain single. Serve God. Do those things that others are not able to do in the same way to the same capacity. I think of some of the, some of the even greatest, uh, you know, most helpful theologians I've, I've read of or read. I think John Stott, for example. I mean, some of his writings are some of the best I've ever read. That guy walked with the Lord as a single man all those decades of service. He was able to write the volumes he could write. He was able to do that because he was not caring for a family. I'm thinking of several, several others. So... Um, again, the genuine wisdom is if gifted, remain single. If not, seek marriage. And then as you seek marriage, trust God, cultivate contentedness, do it in his pacing, at his time. 
and watch how God will work. There's much more that could be said, but for the sake of time, we're going to move uh, to the next group that Paul addresses. And that's those who are married, uh, especially to those who are married to an unbelieving spouse. And, and to them, uh, the false claim that was coming up was very simply this. I could be really spiritual if I was divorced. And, uh, and, and what he says is, believer, seek to remain as an avenue of grace. Now, just for a moment, you know, if you, if you look at all these things, isn't it interesting how each of these false claims, they're in some ways opposites of one another? Because it doesn't matter where you're standing. Wherever you are in terms of the setting, married, single, or even married to an unbelieving spouse, if we abstain, then we're really spiritual. If I were married, then I'd be really spiritual. If I was divorced, I'd be really spiritual. <laughs> wherever you are, the temptation seems to be, you see that over there where you're not? Well, you could be really spiritual if you were there. That's the desired place to be. And Paul's saying, don't fall for that lie. Paul says uh, here, to the rest I say, not the Lord. Verse 12. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, don't divorce her. What's with that phrase, I say, not the Lord? Isn't that interesting? Some have said, oh, well, okay, before you know how Paul said, I'm saying by way of concession, not command. Well, this is kind of Paul again saying something to the effect of, hey, I'm saying this, but the Lord's not saying this. So yeah, take it with a grain of salt. That's how some have taken that passage. But that's not what he's talking about. Um, verse 10. The married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Verse 12. The rest, I say, not the Lord. What, what's with those phrases? And, and some would say, well, obviously Paul's writing here and saying, this isn't authoritative. Right? Because if the Lord was saying it'd be authoritative, it's just me, Paul, it's not authoritative. Uh, but that's not the case. Verse 10 and 11, Paul's referring to instructions that Jesus has already given. I mean, we, we see clearly, uh, for example, in Mark 10 and in Luke 16 and other places, Jesus already instructed people on this one. So in verses 10 through 11, when he's saying to the married, I'm giving instructions, don't leave, remain. Jesus is teaching on divorce. Um, Matthew 19, he describes it as well. And so Paul's saying, you all already know those instructions. And what did Jesus say? He said, uh, don't divorce, don't leave unless there's been ongoing, unrepentant sexual immorality. So if, there's, if, that, if that's going on, you then have grounds for divorce. But even then, it's not the first choice. Better to reconcile. Better to come together. Why? Because what God has joined together, let no man rip apart. And so Paul's referring to that and saying, so Jesus has described that and touched on that already. But then, verse 12, he's saying, to the rest, I say, who's the rest? It's going to be those who are married to an unbelieving spouse. I say, not the Lord. When he uses that phrase, he's saying, I'm now giving you new instruction. I'm telling you something. It's, it, he realizes he's speaking with authority. He realizes that he is writing as an apostle and giving revelation from God to them. But he's saying, this is something that Jesus, our Lord, hasn't told us yet. So now I'm giving this to you. And he gives an additional instruction for those who are married to unbelieving spouses. And he also ends up giving an additional grounds for divorce, namely abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. 
But look at what he's saying. The wife should not leave her husband. Verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, it's mutual. It's both. They're both equal before God. He's dealing with both of them in that way. Radical for that time, but completely in line with Genesis 1 through 3. And then he he goes on to describe why. If you look at verse 14, there's a reason. Look at The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now, what's going on here? Well, probably, most likely, he's referring to a situation where a couple was married, and then one of them became a believer. Um, We would see this not as someone who deliberately went out and married someone who didn't know the Lord. Uh, Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to address that. So the, the understanding at the time was, no, you marry someone in Jesus. But it's possible that two people were married, and then one of them hears the gospel, comes to know the Lord, the other does not. And, and now there's sort of this, oh, this is hard, this is painful, this is strange, this is difficult. There's all kinds of issues that came with that for these people. And so some of them are going, you know what, if I just divorce them, I can now not be kind of burdened down by this thing. The idea of a, a yoke that Paul will use in 2 Corinthians would be two animals, you know, put together under a yoke, a beam. And the idea is if you have two oxen pulling together, that's a good thing. You're going to have double the strength. But if you have like Two unlike animals together pulling, let's say an oxen here and, I don't know, something really small, like, like a chihuahua or something, right? Something little. That's just not going to go well. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be off-center, it's going to, right? And so that's the picture Paul gives in 2 Corinthians. Um, it doesn't work. Don't go and marry someone who does not love and know the Lord. And again, that, that, that's something for, again, the single amongst us. Don't compromise on that. Uh, you are, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation there where the unequal yoke factor is going to be really challenging. But anyway, for those who are already married and one person comes to Christ, they might think, this isn't working. And so I better leave. But look at what Paul says. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the reverse is true. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband. Whoa. Now, is he saying there at that point, yes, because of that, they're saved already. The answer is no. That's not what he means. Instead, what he's saying is that there is a, a way in which you, as a believer, in the context of your home, day in, day out, are living in such a way that the light of the gospel and the grace of God at work in your heart and the repentance of you turning away from sin regularly, you're living a life of repentance, the things that you used to do, uh, perhaps that were even unloving towards your spouse, you're going, Lord, I shouldn't do that, help me. And there's growth, and this spouse is seeing it going, huh, what's happening here? What's going on? That's different. They start to see that. And now the light of the gospel is present in your home. And in that way, they might themselves come to embrace Christ. But the point is, either way, the light is there. And that light is a light of grace. It is a light of of sanctifying, of, of, of bringing grace and holiness into that home through that believing spouse. And that's why Paul will conclude with verse 16. How do you know a wife whether you'll save your husband? He's not saying you're going to save him. He's saying God's going to use you to rescue your husband. Or maybe husband, God's going to use you to rescue your wife. And so there's, there's a, uh, 
a beautiful sanctifying work that happens in that. Um, whereas it might be the case that they would think, oh no, I'm, I'm married to uh, an unbelieving spouse. And Paul has just warned us against all these different ways of, of evil overtaking the good. Maybe the evil is overtaking the good in this. And I, I love what Calvin says. He says, the goodness of the one, the believer, does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. See, that's what's happening. There's grace infused now with that believer being there. And then we've got the, the uh, verse 14. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And some of them say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about there, Paul? What do you mean children are unclean? What, what, what is going on with that? Um, and and Paul, Paul is not saying here that there's some way in which kids are anything less than God's image bearers. And that's what, you know, again, the Bible is saturated with language like that from cover to cover. Every child is precious to God. Every child is an image bearer. Every child's life is beyond valuable because of God and his work in making them. Um, and, and so that's not what he's talking about. Instead, uh, what he's saying is realize this. As you have this sanctifying influence in the life of your husband, you don't need to fear in the marriage that somehow that sanctifying influence will not be at work in cleansing your children as well. Because it will. You as the mom or the dad who trusts God, your influence in that will have that impact. And, and so trust God in that. Rather than breaking it off and saying, well, forget that, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, don't do that. Instead, see that you are being used by God in that way. And, uh, and so that's something that, that is a, a beautiful thing to understand. And, and so, again, that's another encouragement for moms. Uh, if you're a mom and you are in a situation where uh, you are married to an unbelieving spouse, take joy and, and, and encourage in that. Uh, you are having a sanctifying influence of grace and light and beauty in that home, in that place. And it's there being used by God in the life of your kids. And you can know that there, there's hope in that. There's assurance in that uh, to, to, be, to be held on to. And, and to, to know that your impact is that way is, is really a, a way that, that, to give thanks for, for what God's doing in your life as a mom in that context. Um, because the reality is, as you live in that context, in that place, uh, your children are receiving the, the grace of the gospel and of light and of truth in that. Uh, there's more that can be said here, uh, but we are out of time. Um, Paul is not content to uh, simply leave these three scenarios uh, uh, and then move on regarding uh, kind of addressing false criteria for true spirituality. There are other situations that will come up. And so uh, he's going to address those uh, in the next section. But in the meantime, let's give praise to God for his wonderful design of, of marriage and of the relationship between a husband and wife in that, his design of singleness and, and the way that that life of dedication to God is to be celebrated and enjoyed. 
Uh, let's give thanks for his providence at work in the lives even, even of those who are married to unbelieving spouses because in that place there is uh, his sanctifying work and that gives us joy in that place and it causes us to have faith and love for those in our households and it gives us hope for what God's doing in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this. We pray that uh, there wouldn't be a, a way in which false criteria for true spirituality would overtake our lives and our thoughts. Lord, we, we, we ask, though, for the, for the married among us, Lord, that, that you would work in ways that, that their homes and their lives together would be that mutually giving of themselves to one another. And that where there are issues or problems with that, Lord, that, that there would be help sought and received, uh, that the uh, lives of couples that are in you would reflect your design and glory in that way, Lord. We pray for the singles amongst us. We thank you for them and for the ways in which that they serve and, and live a, a life in you unavailable to those who are married. We thank you for the joy and and uh, an impact that they bring uh, to those in their lives. And, and Lord, for those amongst us who, who have that gift, we pray that we would be able to um, just be an encouragement to them in their ministry. For those who don't have that gift, who are still in that place, we would look to you to grace them with ongoing patience and, and a realization that you are sovereign and wise and have better plans for them than they have. Um, and give them the grace to trust you and, and to um, seek you and to honor you in every part of their lives, even as their desire would be uh, to be married to that person someday. And we pray that you would provide that person in the right time, the right person. Um, and we would also, Lord, ask that you would bless those who are married to, to unbelieving spouses, Lord, that by your grace, you would be at work in those homes that that even the way this passage ends of, of being a light and being used by you to rescue others. May that happen repeatedly. Thank you that that has happened in our church family um, repeatedly in the past. We praise you for this. And so we look to you now to accomplish it again in the future. Lord, as all these different things are, are where the rubber truly does meet the road in our lives, Lord, we ask that you would... Um, Enable us to, to take in your truth, to rejoice in your grace, and to move forward honoring you. And, uh, and Lord, we again thank you for the moms amongst us and for the way this passage touches their lives and would ask that for all of us, uh, we would rejoice in our Savior, the living one, who's coming back again very soon. It's in his name that we give you thanks. Amen.